Leadership's incredibly lonely. Empathy as a leader is really critical. When you reflect on anything you do, reflect on anybody you know, at some point in time, even our great leaders have failed. I need to drive simplicity in my strategic planning. Hello, and welcome to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, brought to you by SG Partners. Each episode allows you to hear from real leaders of real businesses with the aim of assisting you to become even more effective at what you do. Whether you're already a leader, CEO, business owner, manager, or an entrepreneur. This exploration of leadership effectiveness covers a range of challenges you may already be experiencing yourself. Now, let's hear from our host, international speaker master, NLP practitioner, and owner of SG Partners, Michael Lane. Hello, and welcome to Traits of Effective Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Michael Lang, owner of SG Partners, and I'm joined today by Ed Seal in this episode. Ed Seal is a senior executive who has lots of insights to share from his time being CEO of The Lock Group. Ed has been with The Lock Group since 1996, so this is 21 years he was with them, recently leaving. Ed is also involved in the Box Hill Hawks football club, that's AFL to those listeners out there. Ed has done a business accounting and business management uh, degree at Monash University. And I know Ed from the time that I was assisting him in Locker Group with his sales effectiveness program. Ed has some great insights as being a leader and through change. And I look forward to sharing those insights with you today as we banter about traits of effective leadership. Hope you enjoy this conversation. So when you finished school, you went straight into Locker or Valmont or whatever it's called. Oh, no, probably there's a bit of a gap my uh, resume then. So no, a bit of uni and uh, a little bit of time in a couple of commercial businesses. But I was looking for a, a safe port. My, uh, we just had our, uh, our little girl, a daughter, and right. um, thought I'd better find a job that uh, had a bit of stability. And there was a, a job at Locker going at that time. So um, I didn't realise it would be 27 years of stability, but right. uh, it certainly ticked the first box. So our, our guest today is Ed Sill, and looking at Ed Sill's resume on his LinkedIn, I was struck that this is probably the first person as a leader that I've ever engaged with that's been with a company for so long. <laughs> it's so unusual. Well, well, I think as we get into this conversation, there's no doubt there's some, some pitfalls attached to it. I think... Um, <laughs> Well, well let's talk about the pitfalls. Okay, so you're hiring, you're recruiting someone in a leadership space and you've seen that they've been with a company for 20 years. What goes through your head? Yeah, yeah. I think, you, yeah, look, you, you want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, don't you, that, okay, let's try to understand this. And I guess if, if we saw that someone had been doing, had 20 years of experience of 20 lots of one year's worth of experience, you'd really put a pretty big question mark across that and say, okay, there's some, there's some real challenges there. If they'd had a, a far more diverse, broad-ranging set of skills and experiences, then I don't think it changes your your thought process too much. And then I guess to a certain extent, that that's what happened to me. That you know we were fortunate to be able to go on a great run of growth and acquisitions, and then management buyouts, then sales, private equity, and ultimately a sale to a public listed company. So from my personal experience, I I didn't have too many years of similar runs where I go, okay, I've just had another 12 months of experience of the same thing. So so looking at someone like that, I think you just need to dig under the surface a little That's bit right. and understand 
what their motives were and, and where they'd been and what the experiences that uh, they, they had. So if we look at roles or applications at the time of lockout, what would be the longest time you were in a role or an application? So I guess I was purely the chief executive of lockout for perhaps 10 years and, and in that time it had changed ownership structures and we'd moved from effectively a private to a private equity to another private equity. So, but yeah, in general terms, 10 years of not too dissimilar from day-to-day responsibilities. Not dissimilar, but the way you just described there, you would have changing strategies at those periods of time. I think uh, to a certain extent, you're changing, you've got changing dynamics. Typically what I've found in the the various ownership structures that, that I've worked under, most of them allowed the business to get on with being a better business. So their timeframes weren't, they didn't govern the business by their timeframes. So private equity is an example. I think you've always got a reputation for having a, a three-year window, whatever that timeframe is. Their writing instructions to me were no different, which was create a good business, build a good business. Right. Um, and then obviously things change and as you're starting to get to the point where they might want to exit strategy or the process has changed a little bit, but the, the strategy around the business ultimately didn't change a great deal. As I say, just different ownerships, different holding of structures. But that was the nature of that particular private equity. For, for instance, I've got another client who has in a private equity and they're coming out, I think their fifth year. And so I said to the manager director, well, you're not going to be able to get any funds to do anything dramatic, right? You're fixed. They just want yeah. profit bottom line. So it depends upon the private equity structure and their pattern of behaviour. Uh, no doubt, undoubtedly. So we, we went into that with a, a degree of reservation around what that was going to bring. We didn't find it. We didn't experience it. Now, again, I think to your point's right, as, as we were getting towards what clearly was the right time to, for them to sell, absolutely there's going to be a change in the value they'll, they'll necessarily going to be willing to put into the business. But you know, that didn't suggest for a moment that there was capex. In fact, you know, the great philosophy was if it makes sense in 12 months, if it makes sense now, it makes sense in 12 months. Let's get on with it. So now, you know, we weren't at that stage talking about restructuring businesses or making significant change, which we might have been if we knew we weren't coming to the end of the end of the road. So when we think about culture, Ed, and the journey you've been on with Locker, one as being a person that is within an organisation where you're not driving culture, you're just the end result of whatever's happening in culture from another leader to the person that's in charge of culture. So what are the aspects that you think are really important to create a fantastic culture? I, I, um, we had a, a fairly lengthy period of roll-up of the industry that we were playing in. And like at all good businesses, we had a tagline, which was at that stage, one team, one goal. And I was reflecting on it one day after a, uh, a management meeting and reflecting it really should be changed to one team, seven goals. Because we just the, the the lack of alignment was startling, and I just sort of tried to unravel that and unpack that a little bit. And uh, I think it came back down to that trust and that safety position that we didn't have enough trust within the team, and people didn't feel safe enough to be themselves. So it was a highly political environment. So it really probably taught me the most important lesson at that point in time was you just got to how, how do you keep working on creating a safe environment for your senior people. That doesn't mean that, you know, that they're not open for challenge or 
scrutiny or accountability, but they just feel safe in providing their views. And so that that's probably, if I looked at anything that as a bedrock of creating culture, that was the one thing that I would say I'd always go back to and I, I reflect on that constantly and positively to say that that's something that's really important to me in terms of setting up the cultures and the values of an organisation. And that, that reminds me of, you know, one of the aspects of Patrick Lencioni talks about that a lot of leaders don't like to have meetings because they, they walk away from the meetings and they feel that their leaders have not bought in. They, they don't walk away saying, hey, you've got my back. So he, he said one of the aspects is to create robust meetings so that by the time everyone walks out, that everyone is aligned to the outcome because you've teased all the nuances of why they don't believe in it and so forth. So, But to do that, they've got to feel safe to be vulnerable to have those robust conversations in those meetings. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, you, and then there's the challenge that you need to empower and, and have confidence around the people you're dealing with. And I think, you know, it's, it's like any good management team, you've, you've got to make some pretty strong calls on your way through as you build that out. Having trust in someone who you're questioning their ability is, is clearly not a manageable or workable situation. So, um, but once you have that and you, you get to that point, it, it, it becomes so much more fun to, to run that business because it is, when I, I, I used to describe it as you know, blood on the walls, that was probably incorrect and a bit graphic, but you know, they were really robust conversations around areas of the business that we we're working on. It wasn't about strategy at that point in time. The strategy was agreed. It was how do we deploy or what are the tactics that we need to be focusing on and just made for a safe environment and environment that every, everyone, you could measure energy levels against safety levels. Cool. Uh, That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. And that uh, the, the more there's people graduated on, and I, you know, I, I always enjoyed graduating younger talent into our management team. And you could almost see a flick of the switch around, you know, the three-month mark where, gee, I'm really being exposed. I'm hearing everything that's going on. I'm engaged. I'm being asked. I'm not necessarily always having my way, et cetera. And you could just see the energy levels start to grow and start to explode out. Wouldn't it be cool in the boardroom or the meeting rooms where you have this visual thermometer that could yes. display to everyone where the energy level is? Yeah. Uh, it, it's a bit of a... Um, conundrum in that I'm a great believer in getting your work-life balance right and that thought process has evolved now in my mind at the very least to saying okay when are you at your most productive when are you at your most efficient and so I don't necessarily so you know if I was to measure it you know is, does someone arriving at 7 30 and leaving at 6 30 is that energy no not necessarily is energy that the speed of response the speed of actions the degree of intensity of conversations yes they are a little bit harder to measure, Correct. but equally or more so important than I think than you know necessarily time and effort. I mean, it's a difficult space to measure, isn't it? You know, certainly from the experience last year, where the whole world had to learn from a working environment space to say, okay, well, because some of the old time leaders where they're controlling, as in, when I see you at work, I know you at work, right? Yeah. So yeah. now they're working from right. home, and they're challenged by what is control anymore. But workers are saying, well, you know what? I'm more of a morning person. That's where I'm most productive. Yep. And therefore, I'm going to log off at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I don't want to be seen or felt that I'm not you know, pulling my weight. So last year was a really interesting year to see where that actually ends up. I have this 
theory, and I you know, call it the sort of the bushfire theory, that when a bushfire roars through locally, for the next five to seven years, everyone is really attentive about prevention and that after about five years, the level of the standards start to drop back and you find within 10 years, you're back to where you were in a pre-bushfire. I think everyone now is really open-minded about how do we exercise people's working hours better and, and how do we be open-minded to that and how do we engage better. I wonder, though, we're going to just see a bit of a drop-off over a period of time and we keep going back, no, we need you in the office five days a week. Yeah. So, But that comes down, again, from leadership as about... Yeah. You have an increase in whatever you're looking for and then you're embedding and then it's the nature of does a leader have the energy to create the next wave or the next cycle we have to go through? Yep. So therefore it comes back again to, well, Ed, you've been placed for so long. Yep. How did you keep reinventing yourself to say, okay, well, there's the next level for me, so I need to get there and when I'm getting there, I'm going to take my team with me? Yep. Now, I think a couple of points to that. I guess we were lucky by and large, that, that opportunities that came before us were the right strategic opportunities and we were able to take advantage of them. So you know, when, when I was first appointed into the role you know, at within, we were able to do an acquisition reasonably quickly that doubled our size. So there was some challenges around getting that embedded, of course. And then a couple of years later, we did another acquisition that doubled us again. And then a few years later, we did another acquisition that added another 50%. So broadly speaking, we went from 15 million to 150 million within a series of acquisitions. So at that point in time, if you're not bringing energy levels to those changes, then you know, the, the organisation's got a problem. So I think I was constantly energised by the next opportunity as we saw that. So that's what brought to me the opportunities. And again, coming back to the same point, it wasn't 25 years' experience of doing the same year. We were learning on the run and growing on the run and so, no, that was they were really exciting times and great learnings as you go on your acquisition programs. You know, the, the first business we looked at, we loved the sales culture in the, in the business. They were wonderful, wonderful sales culture that they brought to the table. But we didn't really spend much time looking at the manufacturing processes and, and they proved to be, you know, really challenging. So, of course, the next acquisition, what do we do? We focus on the make sure the machines are really up to date, where are your logbooks, et cetera, and then we forgot about culture and then about six months in we go, wow, we've got a bit of a problem with culture. So I reckon by the fourth or fifth time we're starting to get okay with it, you know, just making sure it's a little bit more rounded than, than perhaps the, the hot spots were, were indicating. Cool. So, so you mentioned strategy before. So what do you think the key activities that, as a leader that you need to consistently apply to ensure people are aligned to your strategies? So I was given a book by... A boss at one stage is on strategy. And I got about 20 pages in. I hardly understood a word. And uh, I, was all, I was embarrassed by it. You know, just, I read, went back and tried it again and tried it again and tried it again and just didn't, for whatever reason, my brain was not able to absorb that. Now, I do enjoy reading, so it was a reasonably uncommon experience. And it just struck to me that at a personal level, I need to drive simplicity in my strategic planning. So I'm a great fan of a one-page, talk about it, you know, build your house on one page. What's your strategy? And if you can't explain it to me on one page with some reasonably simplistic items on that, then I'm not going to be able to necessarily sell that and buy into it. So that's the first piece is the simplicity point around it. And then when you transfer that into your measuring, how do you measure 
that. Again, keep your measuring points really simple. So I know I've um, been through some organisations where you know, the, the amount of data that we reported on was just overwhelming. And then, of course, there's some that would want to try to tell you, well, here's the bank balance at each end of each month and that's about all we give. But I think you know, keeping your strategy and your, your measurables simple and then just consistently measuring those. Now, you know, we're very simple that as soon as something goes offline according to your plan, okay, we then need to start honing down in onto that and start measuring that as we put some corrective actions into place. But, you know, if we can't capture our plan on one page and if we can't capture our measurables on one whiteboard, then my view was that we're going to allow too much wiggle room for people to talk about from a strategic viewpoint. Um, and all of a sudden we just start to broaden out what that uh, what that place looks like. How did you keep the strategy alive? So I think when I think about building out my house, there's core values that I think are always the foundation. And so once you've got those in place, they don't change. In my and then I, I always like to talk about what are the enablers of strategy, and I'm, I'm a people's person. So when I think about who enables strategy, it's about your people. So again, you're starting to get your pillars around how do you finally get to the marketplace and, and talk around what's important there. So I think those that bottom half of your house, in my mind, from a strategic viewpoint, shouldn't change greatly. It's then, you know, to your point, how do you regenerate the top half? You know, I think um, it's not necessarily about is this, obviously you're trying to measure it, trying to understand it. How often do you regenerate that? I always always was a bit uncomfortable with the concept of rewriting a strategic plan annually. But then you reflect on it and go, you know, 12 months is a long time and the competitive dynamics that you were seeing, the market dynamics that you were seeing, they've changed. So I think our... Certainly in the last few years, it was around revising your strategic plan on an annual basis and trying to update that and fine-tune that. What that led to a little bit was people wanting to rewrite the strategic plan. Go, okay, rewriting our strategic plan every year, then we've failed the simplicity test and we've failed the, the measurable test. Yeah. So what do you think as a leader, what are the core traits, three core traits that are important to be a great leader? If you'd asked me that three years ago, six years ago, ten years ago, I'd probably have in general terms different answers. You know, the themes, I guess, won't gee, be disappointed if the themes change. But on reflection now as I, uh, as I enter my, uh, my sixth decade, you sort of think, I think empathy as a leader is really critical. You know, if I talk about a safe environment, I don't think you can have a safe environment without having some empathy for your team and your people and for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I guess yeah, I reflect on my first leaders in organisations and the first thing that was very clear was that they were never wrong and I reflect back on that now and go, you know, that, that's creating an environment that's made really tough to be safe. So I think that empathetic piece, I think, sits really important. I think great leaders inevitably have a wisdom attached to their thought process. It's something you can't necessarily get out of a book. You can get with experience. Experience helps wisdom, but I think... Most leaders are able to assess things reasonably quickly and, and have some, some thought processes that just narrow down everybody's thinking. And the third one is something that I always felt that I had, particularly for the first chunk of my tenure, was energy. I, I, I felt whether there was the ability to 
revitalize myself or re-energize myself. I'd like to think I brought energy to the business and the team pretty constantly, and I think so. Therefore, it's it's critical. And you you know, I'll, I had a great leader guy out of the UK called uh, Phil Gartside, and and he had energy in a different way. Would would he bounce into a room and be the life of the party and say, right, we're going? No. But he rang me every morning from the UK at three o'clock in the afternoon, every working day. And it just left such a profound piece on me that the first thing he thought about when he woke up was to, I'll see how Ed in Australia's going. And I always felt that was great. That was energy. You know, it could have been easily just to go and make yourself a cup of tea and get on with the day. But he, he presented energy to me day in, day out. So they're, they're the three, Michael, that I, I reflect on and, and probably align myself to and look to in great leaders that I've uh, worked for. I've been blessed, absolutely blessed with having some, some great leaders, some of whom have become important parts of my life, some of them that at a personal level we have no connection on. And there's great learnings that it doesn't have, you know, you don't have to necessarily connect at a personal level with a great leader. So I, I you know, reflect on that and go, and, but you know, the attributes that I probably naturally uh, lean towards are those three. Cool. But let's go back to the energy though. So your leader in the UK rang you as soon as he got up at three o'clock every day. What did it really demonstrate to you, Ed? Yeah. Well, it certainly wasn't a checking up process. It was a checking in process. What about you? I think he was creating a safe environment. He was creating a trusting environment. And he wanted to know that from a long way away, he had my back. And when you were recounting that story, I wrote down a word is he cared about you. Yep. Right? Yep, absolutely. Very true. Now, so Phil in that instance was one that transcended a professional career, we you know, ended up becoming great friends, you know, sort of you know, happy to declare that, you know, love the man greatly. Yeah. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago now. But the you know, use the word energy, to me, it sounds like caring and how you demonstrate that. Yep. yep, absolutely. Which is in line with the empathy as well about stopping enough to listen to another person and demonstrate that you care. Yeah. Interesting. So I wouldn't say... If I looked at Phil, would Phil have been an empathetic person? It took a lot of work to get to him sometimes across that line. So empathy wouldn't necessarily be something that you would flag him with. But I think as he, as he matured and got older, then that, that might have changed a little bit. But once he was loyal to you, he was forever loyal. Yeah. So, But that loyalty wasn't easily found. But once it was found, it yeah. was found. Yeah, cool. Love a freebie? Go to sgpartners.com.au forward slash resources and get access to guides and templates that will make you and your team more effective today. So what's the number one lesson you learned from your failures, Ed? I think the number one lesson is that it happens. Yeah, <laughs> true. And wherever I look... Anything in life, you think about it, Michael, and you reflect on anything you do, reflect on anybody you know, at some point in time, even our great leaders have failed. They've failed. And so now as someone who's probably a little bit prone to self-abuse in terms of failure, it's been a learning curve for me. 
that you've just got to accept it. First of all, you're going to fail. Someone, another great mentor in, in my life, another Phil who panned out, also from the UK, said to me, as long as you make more good decisions than bad decisions, you're in front of the ledger. And I, I never quite agreed with that. And I think good leaders you know, hopefully have got enough wisdom that they're making lots more good decisions than bad decisions. But I, I certainly got the context of it to say, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to reflect back on and you know, reflect on some of my hiring mistakes. What were you thinking? But the learning from that, Michael, was that just be have enough humility to say, I got that wrong. I got that wrong and I need to fix that. And I need to fix that quickly. See, a lot of organisations don't learn quickly enough from their mistakes. So, yeah, that's what I would say is that, again, I think it's an interesting question in terms of if you'd asked me to run an organisation that was going to put a man on the moon, I would say you couldn't get a worse leader or most more inappropriate leader than me to do that. If you said, okay, what we would like you to do, Ed, is entrepreneurial, grow our businesses and our organisations within parameters of the markets that we serve and the products that we have, then I'm okay. I'm okay. And so I guess that's just a, an observation that we will fail. We will fail in our areas of expertise and, and you know, how we learn from it and rebound from it is going to be, going to be the really critical piece. I think one of the challenges for us leaders is the word failure and the energy we put around it. Yep. Right? For me, the word failure was just like it was drummed into my from my dad in an early age that I just could not fail. Yeah. And so therefore, for me to grow and take risk, I couldn't do it because failure was such a strong antichrist or whatever to yeah. me, right? Yeah. And not until I got comfortable with the understanding, actually you're not failing, you're going to have a learning. Yeah. And it's okay yep. to lean into that, yeah. right? Yeah. But the big thing, though, is to have a learning, you have to have self-awareness. It has to come first to say, oh, I didn't do that right and that's okay, now let me pull that apart, as opposed yep. to denial, I didn't do that right, well, that's not my fault, it's someone else's. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how do you think then that matches with accountability? Well, I find a lot of companies I engage with, no matter what size, leaders really struggle with accountability. And it's been fascinating and it's a journey in myself that in a home life, I'll hold my kids accountable yep. and I'll be really comfortable with that because that's my role and I'm really comfortable with that. And yet when we walk over this threshold of a business, we seem to not be comfortable and it's whether we need our people to like us too much, that we're worried about what the repercussions could be that if they left or something else, that stops us. Or just this word accountability, which is probably not something we use at home. We use other verbiage. But the word accountability could have negative connotations as well. Yep. So, you know, I'm using uh, terms like positive accountability frameworks just to get that energy different. Accountability is still there. I had a leader, a sales leader once say, well, I'm really not happy with the word accountability. I go, right, what about holding your team accountable? No, I'm not happy with that. But I'm happy with them holding themselves accountable. I'm going, whoa, there's some beliefs that are stopping you embracing because we know that great people love to know where they are and where they need to go. And if you're not willing to have those conversations continuing with them, then they get despondent and they think that you don't care about them. So they go look somewhere else for that. 
great people strive for the next challenge. Um, so what, what do you think the core issue is that in general terms, I, I, it's the, the lack of accountability I see is chronic. So where do you see that, if you had to say what's the critical issue, the core issue there, what is what it be? Uh, it's a belief system which comes from value sets, right? So somehow through life they've had an experience and they've said, well, this is my value around being held accountable. So they might have had someone hold them accountable and it was a negative experience. Yeah. So they lock that in. Well, I wouldn't do that to anyone else. Or the word accountable through hearing about it, they've said, well, that doesn't sound like something that I want to experience. So therefore, I'm not going to do it to someone else. So I once was talking to a sales leader. He said, well, to me, Michael, accountability is when I was in the army and therefore I shouted at. I said, well, there you are. You've locked that one in. So therefore, you're not going to hold your team accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating. I'm watching the political debate in Australia at the moment. There's this sort of ongoing phrase, they need to be held accountable. And I still don't quite understand, you know, that framework. It's almost like any time you make a mistake, there is an ultimate accountability attached to it. And I'm sure that is deservedly so in certain circumstances. But, yeah, are you going to create a safe environment if people think they're always going to be Get totally some sort of retribution for making a mistake in an environment, in the environments that I've been leading and growth environments and entrepreneurial environments. You know, I used to always say that what's the safest way to avoid a bad debt? Not give credit. Yes. What's the easiest way to give go out of business? Not give credit. It's, um, it's just the simple rules, isn't it, that we, that we need to apply? I don't have the answer to help a leader embrace accountability other than put in a process, a system, and build some cadence around that. And yep. after a while, when you're leaning in, you'll find that it's okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But people will get stuck because they're not willing to take that experience or take that little pain to get that gain afterwards. It's interesting. You probably have to work with a few people to get them over the line. But any, any leader that I've come across with some energy and self-awareness, et cetera, they do like being measured. They do like being measured because they like to beat it. Uh, and, you know, how, how do you get that in place? I would say I take a little bit of pride, Michael, that a lot of the leaders that I've worked with over time from an accountability viewpoint will say to me, we never felt threatened by you, but we were aware when we disappointed you. And it wasn't a rant and a rave. It wasn't a, you know, throwing the desk over and all that sort of stuff. It was just a really short, sharp conversation. So we've agreed this and it hasn't happened. Yeah. And it could be just the phrase, I'm disappointed. Yeah. Right? So now we're really tapping into some emotion here. Well, and, and there's a bit of guilt there and fine, yeah. we'll work with yeah. that, right? Yeah. Well, Brené Brown wouldn't like that. She said no one really functions high on shame. But it's just to say I'm disappointed. Yeah. I, I reckon that the... Some psychologists will take that back to your, you know, your, your parents. If the, the worst thing you can hear from your parents is, I'm disappointed. Yeah. That's the one you go, whoops, okay. So, again, inversely, it's, the respect has to be there to start with as well. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. So, Ed, you and I have had a history where we did a sales engagement improvement yeah. program, right? What's the most important thing you need to focus on when doing a change management or transformation programs? I think there's two... In the joy of 2020 hindsight, which is the best management tool, isn't it? I think 
in most instances to understand is first instance is the organization in the right place is it capable of the change getting about change management planning the change i think in some regards so i reflect back on the work that we did michael and i would say the operation was a success but the patient died the reason that happened was that we as an organization weren't open-minded enough and willing to be going on a change journey we were generally closed-minded and um, you know the old saying of you know we've been successful doing the way we've we've done it does the organization have the ability to change i think that then once you've made that decision and you're moving more into an operational change management process i'd be looking at and saying let's be very very careful of what we don't know as we move change management and that would be my biggest reflection on a couple of areas that have gone you know there's been some significant challenges around that I, as my, so there's a couple of um, tie-ins here, I think, Michael, is that now I would identify that in the last five years, my energy levels have been well below what they should be to be an appropriate leader. And I was getting by on a little bit of rote learning, a little bit of respect from around the various parts of the business, etc. So that level of energy meant that when we were going through change management, I wasn't driving a rigour early on on a couple of areas to say, Am I absolutely sure? Am I believing what I'm being told too much? Am I taking preordained ideas or thought processes into the review here? And when you're coupling that with a lack of energy and drive and efficiency, then you're starting to starting to create a bit of a, an environment that is going to prove is going to be prone to failure. I hear, I hear. Thank you, Ed. So if you had your time again as a leader in the company you're in, what's one or two things that you do differently? I'd I'd have got out earlier. (laughs) Is that that energy thing you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And it's driven not by by anything other than saying time's up. So I thought, and I don't know what the time frame is. And as I said, I had numerous changes and et cetera, et cetera. I look at, I have a passion for, sports and I, I look at one uh, sporting organization that i follow particularly closely and i'll reflect on that and go you know the senior people in that organization now haven't changed for over 10 years at what point in time does it need a regeneration so i'd reflect on and go whilst i was doing different things i still had similar accountabilities in certain spots and i was well past my use by date my energy levels my market comp Comprehension, all the critical factors that you need to be supportive of those businesses. I was well past. Because I remember, I remember near the end, you said to me, I just don't feel challenged enough. You know, yep. the mandate is trained, I feel constricted, so it's time to get out. I think that was probably, with the joy of 2020 hindsight, and a cop out from you say I was restricted or constricted. I wasn't driving that anyway. So, you know, we, there was stuff that I was still doing well. There was and you know, the general people management piece and managing up and down the organisation, which, you know, I'm, I'm okay at and I'm still putting some time and effort into that. But the next evolution, did I have the energy? And I'd say all of a sudden, I say, oh, I'm too constrained, too restricted. Yeah, I think on, in hindsight, there's a burnout factor attached to you know, just not creating an environment personally for me to, to take that next challenge. So, you know, it, 
did, did it become a safe house for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Was I in a comfort zone? I got back into a bit of a comfort zone. Which then reflects on your the people are leading you, possibly not challenging you enough, not holding you accountable, not doing something that would get that energy up and running again. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, there's probably a tyranny of distance attached to that. Yes. That um, it, it's... So if, you know, you're speaking to the guy who was my senior leader over in the US and I, you know, still keep in really close contact with him and he'd say, no, you brought energy all the time. And maybe that's the case and maybe that was, you know, the pantomime that we have at, at meetings. But it certainly wasn't the energy that I would normally bring. Yeah. And I, I could really see that a little bit at the time. But certainly in retrospect, you know, watch some things you were doing going, wow, okay, that, that's sort of the telltale sign. But there's nobody really close there's probably a couple of people i've worked with for an extended period of time in fact one one did say to me you know he said i've never seen hunched shoulders on you okay it's interesting but in retrospect you go that was going on yeah said your journey now is you're going to be a private investor in company or companies right so you're taking all these learnings and you're going to be filtering companies leadership to say do i want to invest in that company so it's going to be a really interesting journey for you Really exciting, really, really exciting. So I think the coming back to that, the failure piece, I reckon one thing that I can teach the next generation is about failure. I think hopefully most of us, you know, who've been through it a little bit have, have the courage to teach through failure. So, you know, finding and aligning ourselves with strong management or management teams that we engage with and connect, that's going to be the first critical piece. So, again, it's not necessarily to say we're going to become friends, we might become business friends, but, you know, we, we're really excited about looking where is that energy being provided, where are we seeing empathetic leadership, all those things that, that, that I resonate with them and tied to. And, I, you know, we, we're fortunate. We've probably had 30 discussions already with potential management teams and, and you know, some of those have gone negatively because they see us as coming in wanting to control and going, no, no, we want the cobblers to cobble. We just want to hear to pass here, be here to pass on our experiences, both positive and negative, and, and sort of a, a broadness of our experience that we think will help. So, um, you know, to, back to your point, I think that's one of the most exciting pieces that we'd be able to work with management teams and just provide our our history and our experience, a little bit of wisdom. Not to say we've got all the answers, and not to say they necessarily should listen to all of our our positions, but let's be learnings for them on the way as well. Sounds like a couple of your criteria going forward would be, is the organisation ready for change? Yep, absolutely. Is leadership self-aware and open, right? Yep, yep. Cool. And in both instances, a couple of businesses we really like and we like the, the management time or team, we like the MD. The MD is not ready. Yeah. He's not ready. And that, that's fine. That's fine. And, and perhaps being there, done that myself. So I think it's so really exciting. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. No, time. no, I, I always appreciate your time, Michael. I, yeah, I always feel I come out of these conversations um, more informed than I go into them, which is a good thing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And speaking about a sports that you love and talking about when to step down in the AFL, we've just seen a recent example of someone that well and truly stayed too long. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and unfortunately, it's tarnished the reputation that you talk about energy. Yeah. There's a guy who brought energy every single day. 
no problems. I think, unfortunately, the organisation got cast so much in his shadow as over such a long period of time that, that unless you're amazing, evolving of your thought processes, yeah, that's going to be pretty counterintuitive to, to allow an organisation to grow. I think when you talk about energy, it's is the energy for me and me alone or am I going to share that energy, right? Because we're talking about the word ego here, right? Yeah, yeah. To have a healthy ego as opposed to having an unhealthy ego. Right. Oh, does time build? I think time builds your ego in some instances, doesn't it? Success builds your ego and it gets to the point where the ego gets, ego ends up being counter, counterproductive. I reckon, that, and you, I reckon if you did a review of all historic successful sporting organisations, you would pick a time at which the hubris took over. Yeah. Uh, and the egos took over, and there, there would be suddenly a decline. Um, fascinating, so I'm sure this. Well, I mean, Jim Collins' level five leadership is humility, yep. right? Yep. So yep. having the humility to say, you know what, the ego is talking on its own now. Yes. <laughs> so yes. Am yep. I am I listening to say, oh, hang on? So, Ed, thank you so much. I look forward to hearing about your journey, and I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Michael. You have been listening to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, a show which shares insights, experiences, and lessons learned by an incredible lineup of real business leaders. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review or share the show with a friend. To get the show notes from today's episode, go to sgpartners.com.au forward slash podcast. Don't want to miss a single episode? Sign up to be notified when the next one drops. Thank you so much for listening.